Welcome to an exceptional edition of Rebellion's Educational Series. We have an American treasure, hero, General David Petraeus with us to give us lessons on leadership. Thank you so much, General, for coming on. Great to be with you. Thanks. Michael Jordan said, leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to. I challenged people when they didn't want to be challenged. And I gained the respect of my fellow athletes. How would you say that you, you handle this concept in your career? Well, Michael Jordan, first of all, was truly legendary in his accomplishments. Uh, the best all time with six championships and all the rest. Uh, and he did indeed uh, inspire, cajole, pull, push, provide the example, energy, and just a fierce uh, competitive spirit to any organization uh, that he was part of and, and did it really incomparably if you think about all of the accomplishments over the years. Um, when I have thought about leadership, I have often dismissed a little bit the idea that leadership is just about imposing one's will on others or on an organization. That, that can be part of what a leader has to do uh, especially in a really challenging moment uh, of urgency and all the rest. But by and large, I've generally felt that you need to exercise leadership uh, that inspires, uh, that explains, that uh, brings along, uh, that tries to create a context, uh, a, a situation, uh, to provide a leadership style that can bring out the best in each of one's individual reports uh, and the organization collectively. Now, needless to say, that style has to be different uh, over the course of one's career. If you think about this militarily, the style that worked when I was a young uh, airborne ranger lieutenant uh, in a platoon of paratroopers uh, that's a very different style. It's a very physical, it's, um, it's a very much a follow me, do as I do, a bit of cheerleading. Um, it's visceral. It's, 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 you're leading by personal example right at the organizational level. Uh, and then, of course, as you make your way up uh, through the ranks, uh, that style understandably has to, has to change. Um, you reach a point where it's not just all male hardcore paratroopers. There are those of other gender. There are those of other branches and uh, specialties. <coughs> you can get into some of the branches that have a degree of ego attached to them. Uh, and leading those requires a little bit more patience at times than might be the case again in a small cohesive unit uh, of young paratroopers. And of course, when you get to the point of something like the CIA, uh, where I was privileged to be the director, you've got a variety of different groups within that organization, each of which requires a slightly different style. So the style with the analytical side of the organization, for example, these are very cerebral, seriously bright, 
tremendously knowledgeable individuals, often with multiple advanced degrees. And with them, you're almost in, in a professor mode uh, or perhaps a student mode with some. Uh, but you can get into the intellectual back and forth that, again, academics enjoy, in which, frankly, I enjoyed having had an academic past uh, as well. Uh, whereas you get on the operator side, if you will, the clandestine service, the, the, the spies, the human intelligence collection operations officers and the paramilitary. Uh, and that is, again, a bit more action oriented. It's, it's, it's a bit more uh, degree of enormous initiative, uh, capacity to react to different circumstances, uh, ingenuity, um, inability to, to make something out of a difficult situation. Um, and then you have the technology experts, the techies, you have actually the best logistics people and metal benders and woodworkers in the world, believe it or not. Um, and you've got the support elements that, that have a whole variety of different uh, capabilities as well. Not to mention those that are the big data experts and the open source intelligence experts and so forth. So in each of those needs a slightly different style in my view uh, to bring out the best, to create a context in which each of them individually that report to you and then the organization collectively can be all that they can be, which is I think what it is that we're trying to do. And it takes again, a variety of different styles uh, over the years through the different units uh, and the different circumstances and I think the, one of the keys to leadership is actually acknowledging that no style of leadership is going to prove right for every different type of organization, uh, every different type of circumstance and context. Uh, and in some cases, you may have the luxury of time to conduct a, you know, the listening tour and be on receive mode. And then there are times like the beginning of the surge where you know that you're gonna be testifying to Congress within six months of taking command and there have to be results by that time or the entire policy uh, could be constrained by a vote of Congress. So again, there are many different circumstances out there and I think successful leaders typically have demonstrated an ability uh, to determine what the right style of leadership is for those different circumstances. But before going farther, I, I probably should lay out what I think are the four key tasks of strategic leaders, the leaders at the top, because these are critical. And we'll keep coming back to these because it's a very good intellectual construct for strategic leadership in particular. That's again, the leader who's truly making the fundamental decisions at the top for an organization. The first of those tasks is to get the big ideas right. You've got to get the strategy right. If you don't have it right, uh, you, everything you do from there on is building on a very shaky or, or certainly not a solid intellectual foundation, and that is very dangerous. The fact is that in the surge in Iraq, the surge that mattered most was the surge of ideas, not the surge of forces. It was the change in strategy of 180 degrees of going from consolidating on big bases, handing off tasks to Iraqi security forces, preparing to go home to realizing that those Iraqi security forces no longer could handle the escalating level of violence, that the country was on the edge of a civil war. We had to provide better security for the people without which nothing else was possible. So we had to go back downtown, back into the neighborhood, 77 additional locations 
just in the Baghdad division area of responsibility alone. And we had to take back control from our Iraqi counterparts, then pull them offline, reconstitute them, fill them back up with people, equipment, and some training, and then back into the line only then. Uh, and over time, gradually thin out, gradually hand off, uh, but that after a year or a year and a half of very solid results. And we recognized that we couldn't kill or capture our way out of industrial strength insurgency. We had to reconcile with as many of the rank and file of the Sunni insurgent organizations and the Shia militia supported by Iran, the rank and file, even as we intensified the effort to capture or kill the irreconcilables, the leaders of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the major Sunni insurgent groups, and the Iranian-supported Shia militia organizations. Those are the big ideas. Now, in an ideal situation, you'd come into an organization uh, and you would, through a series of iterative, open, transparent, and inclusive uh, drills, if you will, or, or processes, you would gradually arrive at the big ideas. Um, and that's the way I sought to do it, for example, at the CIA. In the surge, we didn't have that luxury, beyond which many of us had already spent two or more years on the ground. I was well over two and a third, nearly two and a half years on the ground. We'd spent the previous 15 months determining what it was we needed to do, how, to, how we had to reshape every aspect of preparing our forces, uh, leaders, units, equipment, and everything else. And so when we hit the ground on the surge, we had the big ideas. We had a counterinsurgency field manual that we had just written, just published a month earlier after a year, intensive year of, of drafting that and finalizing it. We knew what we needed to do. And then it was incumbent to perform the second task of strategic leader, which is to communicate the big ideas through the depth and, depth and breadth of the organization. And that's crucial. They have to understand how to operationalize those as well at their level. So the, the young strategic sergeant or strategic lieutenant, as we call them, because their tactical actions could have strategic implications, they had to understand how to translate big ideas at my level into concrete action at their level, outside the wire, under body armor and Kevlar with weapon, doing what only they could do, which was to engage the enemy and also to engage the population. So I put out a letter on the first day to the soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen and civilians of the multinational force Iraq, I, in the first speech, emphasized the need to secure the people, which we could only do by living with them, change the mission statement, change the, the operational plan, and then over a series of months changed all the other annexes and activities associated with the different lines of operation that we were pursuing. So again, that's crucial. And of course, you're doing it up and out with your counterparts, your coalition members, and everything else. And then you have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is what we normally think of as leadership. This is attracting the right people, hiring them. It's allowing those that aren't measuring up to move on to something else. Uh, it's rewarding those who perform well. It's, it's incentivizing. It is uh, providing example uh, and energy and determination and that tone, that style that we discussed uh, earlier being very, very important as well. Uh, it's actually how you determine whether you're winning or losing. It's the metrics and how you ratchet those down and make sure the definitions are very clear and you understand how the information is being gathered and deconflicted uh, and so on. 
um, and it's seeing it for yourself. And above all, it's really how you spend your time. And we had a huge butcher block pad of paper that laid out what I did on every single day in combat during the war in Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, what did we do several times a week? What did we do once a week? And then what did we do every other week? Monthly meetings of the commanders, the two stars and above. Uh, actually, weekly, we had the three stars and above. Uh, and then uh, quarterly, the ambassador and I chaired a six-hour long uh, campaign plan review and analysis uh, that was attended by virtually all the major commanders, the other ambassadors, everybody. People would come in from Washington and Tampa, where Central Command Headquarters was, and so forth. So uh, that's that process. And again, that's what we normally think of as, as leadership. Uh, because we tend to skip over that first crucial uh, task, which is getting the big ideas right. And then there's a fourth task that is sometimes overlooked as well, and that is to sit down formally with various action forcing mechanisms to determine how to refine the big ideas so that you can do it all again and again and again. Uh, and, and we had a number of these. I would meet weekly, for example, with the strategic planners. In fact, I think it was more than once a week. There were other meetings that we had on the calendar uh, on this uh, battle rhythm, if you will, how I spent my time that would force me to make decisions on certain actions that we would have to take months in advance because we're at the strategic level. At the four-star level, it has to filter down through the three-star, the two-stars, the colonels, the lieutenant colonels, the captains, lieutenants, sergeants, and so forth down to the individual soldier uh, on the ground. And we also had a monthly session where we had the team leaders of all these lessons learned teams. We had one from the Army, the Marine Corps, Joint Special Ops, uh, Asymmetric Warfare Group, my Counterinsurgency Center. All of these were all over the battlefield. They would bring back lessons that they believe needed to be learned, but lessons not learned until it's actually incorporated in the big ideas and the, the campaign plan, SOPs, policies communicated, and then actually executed. So that's a very, very important construct, I think, to keep in mind as we discuss particularly strategic leadership, which is very applicable, whether you're, again, commanding the surge in Iraq, director of the CIA, uh, or frankly, uh, the head of Netflix or Alibaba or uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos being one of the greatest of strategic leaders, uh, certainly in our time, if not uh, for all times. So if you had Thinking to pick our way through that is important. If you had to pick one leader from World War II that inspired you the most, I, I, would it be Patton or would it be Truman, for instance? Well, it really, it, it, as always, it depends a leader at what level. I mean, if you're going to think of a coalition leader, um, gosh, I might pick Churchill. Uh, I mean, think about somebody who rallied yes. a nation at the, yeah. at the depths of, of challenges. I mean, you can argue that he single-handedly sort of willed the nation through the Battle of Britain in the period of greatest vulnerability when Germany could have actually invaded I uh, have England yes. uh, before he turned east and went into Soviet Union and, and at least reduced the pressure of that particular threat. But again, it took more years of privation and air attacks every night and uh, air raid sirens going off, all of this and terrible casualties um, before, of course, the Americans arrive in sufficient numbers and equipment and start providing uh, 
uh, way beyond the lend lease and all the rest of that, not just to the UK, but also, of course, to uh, our other allies, which interestingly included the Soviet Union uh, at that time as well. So, I mean, again, I think as a, as a coalition leader, he was extraordinary. I think if you think of another, say, coalition leader, Eisenhower would be, uh, he had to contend with Churchill. I mean, Churchill had these incredible strengths, but patent. dealing with him was not the easiest. He had to protect Patton from himself on several no. different occasions, save Patton together with General Marshall back in Washington. Um, and so, it, it, so that's, Eisenhower was a great coalition leader. He was not a great operational leader. Actually, when he was in North Africa, the results were sort of middling. I mean, they actually suffered a terrible reverse at Kasserine Pass, one of the first big engagements yes. for the United States, ultimately prevail, but it was not a, not what one would Very say much. one for the history books. It was not Grant at Vicksburg or something like that, you know, a great maneuver battle. And in fact, as a strategic leader, even there, um, he got D-Day right, which was the biggest, and that's almost in some ways all that mattered. And they worked their way through that, but missed an opportunity to close the pincers at the Falaise pocket and trap uh, hundreds of thousands of Germans from getting away at one point in time, despite pressure from Patton and others to, to do that. Um, but again, what he did was he just kept this whole effort going and just, you know, oversaw meticulous planning, again, had to deal with the egos, not just of Churchill, but also of uh, Montgomery, of, again, of Patton, even Bradley, the soldier, soldier, you know, was not without an ego. Uh, certainly de Gaulle, uh, a handful of, again, the national leaders and, and so forth. So, and again, an extraordinary job in that regard. But if you want to talk, again, battlefield leadership, that's where you would look at someone like uh, Patton. You'd look at uh, some of the other uh, division commanders, General Ridgway of the 82nd Airborne Division, for example, uh, even Brigadier General Tony McAuliffe uh, at the Battle of Bastogne, who, uh, when the Germans ask him to surrender, sends back nuts uh, ah. to them. So, again, it's always a, at what level? And then what about the heroics of, uh, of an Audie Murphy, uh, uh, of these incredible battlefield heroes uh, as well? So, as always, it's leader of what uh, and leader at what level. There were some that were brilliant tactically, uh, operationally, strategically, ta Patton probably certainly tactically and operationally, not strategically. Uh, again, it was his own words that almost cost him his positions a couple of different times or his actions. Um, so I, I think it's, it's always a bit more complex than perhaps it seems um, in watching the movie version of Patton or something like that. Of course, of course. Uh, this has been such a, an amazing experience. Uh, thank you so much. May I ask one last World War II question while I have you? Sure. Why do you think the Germans did not advance uh, on Dunkirk? Well, there are a bunch of what ifs actually involving the Germans. That's only one of them. Um, again, as usual, it's the failure to see an opportunity and to seize it. Um, I think perhaps they were so busy patting themselves on the back for what they'd just done with this blitzkrieg offensive that uh, achieved so much more than they achieved in all of World War I, uh, that again, they just were, were too slow to recognize that they could finish this off. Uh, if they continued and went after Dunkirk. Uh, but the same as, uh, as, you know, they failed to 
to take advantage of that opportunity to perhaps to invade England uh, instead of going east uh, to the Soviet Union, which of course ended up being a quagmire uh, for them uh, and totally inadequately planned with vastly overly optimistic projections, didn't even have cold weather gear for what would turn out to be a just a truly miserable experience uh, for the soldiers on the ground uh, out on the Eastern Front. Uh, and then, you know, why weren't they more uh, agile? Why didn't they react more rapidly to the in invasion in Normandy um, and got deceived and thought it would come in Calais or some other location? Um, again, these are the imponderables of, of history. And, and inevitably, there are sort of individual uh, actions here that, you know, Hitler slept in on that morning or Rommel had to go back to uh, Germany and wasn't present at the, the Western Front, this kind of thing. Uh, those do actually play a role uh, inevitably in what transpires in history. And very last question before I let you go. What is your advice for the 17-year-old aspiring soldier? Well, this will sound somewhat trite, but it is truly to understand that life is a competitive endeavor, uh, that you don't get a trophy or a t-shirt just for showing up in the real world, uh, that you really have to try to be the absolute best that you possibly can be to truly achieve excellence, um, that again, in the real world, nobody admires the gentleman's C or somebody who's too cool for school, especially in truth, if you're in an organization that could actually go to combat on short notice. Uh, it was really quite remarkable to see the transformation of our, our military, of even of West Point, uh, the U.S. Military Academy. I remember speaking there after we'd uh, done the invasion of Iraq, uh, and there was a focus among the cadets because they knew they were going to graduate into an army at war and that they were going to deploy without question uh, in the course of the next two years that they would be in a unit, uh, either very quickly after arrival or certainly within, again, a year or so, given the rotation rates at that time for units. So we're literally doing a, a year in Iraq or Afghanistan, a year home, and then a year back out. Uh, and that became 15 months during the surge. Uh, and so the seriousness of purpose, again, the commitment to truly understanding how they would carry out their responsibilities to master the, the tactical level activities and so forth, was really quite dramatic. Uh, and it was in contrast to the kind of attitude that you saw in truth in my day and in other days when uh, the academy graduates were not anticipating going right into combat. And there was a degree of what might be termed too cool for school. And, you know, the cool guys sort of tried to flout the, whatever the regulations were, you know, you flirt with it, sideburns that are too long or these meaningless kinds of activities. In the grand scheme of things, if you're contemplating actually leaving America's sons and daughters in combat uh, within a few months of your graduation from your officer basic course. Um, so again, at the end of the day, it is, life is about achievement. Uh, it, and you have to really work uh, and drive hard and have enormous uh, determination to truly achieve excellence. 
or again, one should not uh, be surprised if all opportunities are not offered uh, as one progresses up the line. Uh, it, you, you really don't get promoted for quote political reasons or for these other uh, rationales that are sometimes given about folks. Um, you, you know, you get promoted for performance and the potential to perform at, at higher grades. And it has to really be something that is fiercely uh, part of a unit. Um, when I was privileged to lead at the smaller unit level, um, but all the way through, but especially, you know, at this company and battalion and brigade level where you can still very easily sort of touch and influence and lead from the front and so forth. Um, I mean, we sought to create competitive endeavors in everything that we did. Uh, and it was because we wanted individuals to absolutely be striving to achieve excellence. We had very clear standards. We had very clear incentives, rewards, uh, very clear levels. This is excellence. And uh, at a certain point, a unit just starts to, uh, to live this kind of approach. Uh, it embraces it. Um, and it almost runs itself. Um, this is particularly the case in an infantry unit when you get, say, 20 enlisted or, or non-commissioned officer ranger qualified soldiers uh, who, again, are just the embodiment of excellence. Um, and they, are, they become not just standard bearers, but standard enforcers. And they won't allow something that is not too standard uh, to go on without taking corrective action. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get an organization that you know doesn't walk past some trash in your area uh, uh, on a sidewalk. It, they they resent that. You know they just this is my area by golly, and that is not acceptable to the standards that we have. And, and again, it's not that they pick it up when somebody's watching. They do it as a matter of course. And and this just becomes ingrained in, in folks. Um, when we used to run, when I was a three-star general and we would run uh, every morning, usually my own team and, and a handful of different students from the staff college that I was privileged to be the commandant of, although it was really run by a two-star deputy commandant, but we would pluck these majors and they'd come with us and work out. And I mean, we actually carried trash bags with us. Uh, my aide knew to do that. Uh, wasn't something I had to remind him. And if we saw stuff on the side of the road, we'd actually pick it up along the way. Again, it's our post. We were proud of it. And, and that's the kind of attitude, I think, that has to inculcate a unit in, in all areas. And of course, vastly more important when it comes to the performance of the really crucial tasks uh, of an organization, that you can perform those absolutely to standard under the most demanding of conditions, and that you do that in training so that by the time you're actually in combat, uh, you have the kind of response that I got when I was a division commander of the great 101st Airborne Division during the fight to Baghdad. I remember asking this one infantry battalion commander, so I said, how's it going? Bill Hickman, ultimately a two-star general, did four combat tours with me, working directly for me. Uh, and, and he said, hey, sir, this is just like the walk and shoot that we did back at Fort Campbell. Um, and it was, and we had these very realistic live fire exercises 
They were so realistic, I got shot in one of them, took a round right through the chest, which provided great training for the medics as they had to get a, an IV going and make sure I didn't collapse of shock or something like that before getting to a hospital and then on to thoracic surgery. But, but again, you, that's the way you train. Uh, that's the way you approach life. That's the way you are always competing, striving to be the best that one can be. But by the way, competing to be the best team player that you and your organization can be as well as the best overall. Uh, and, and getting that kind of culture, building that uh, is just all important. I can't stress it too much. Awesome. Well, this has been amazing. Uh, you're a hero of mine and you're a hero of so many uh, young men uh, and women out there. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, General. And Pleasure's mine. Thank you. And great to, to be with you. Great. So you have a great day and stay safe during this crazy Thank time. You.